0: If you got your Bibles, open to 2 Samuel chapter 13, 2 Samuel chapter 13, and then we're also going to look at Matthew chapter 27. A lot of scripture today. So here's the deal rough passage today. So rough. I've been in church work, uh, 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 I've been technically my whole life because my dad was a pastor, uh, and I just had never really heard anybody preach or teach on this passage. But um, our promise to you is that we don't skip verses. We work through all of them, and uh, the passage that we're going to navigate today uh, is one that I would truly consider to be one of the darkest in all of Scripture. It's the reason why we've uh, let parents know beforehand we wanted it to be uh, adults only for this uh, for this session. Um, it's just an intense subject matter uh, because it navigates sexual assault. And so I want you to know... The goal of this, as an, as a victim of abuse myself, uh, the goal is not to stir trauma. The goal, in many cases, what we've noticed here is to bring to light what Scripture has to say and that we can find freedom in Jesus Christ. Amen? So what we're going to do today is we're going to read the passage, but we're not going to dwell on it. All right? We're going to read it because it's there. And then we're going to jump in and try to figure out what we do in the aftermath of a truly unthinkable Day, and for some, um, a truly unthinkable set of days, sometimes even months and years of trauma and abuse that you've had to navigate. My prayer is that you would find great freedom today as we go through this passage. Over my years in ministry, we've been on this subject now for about eight weeks uh, on and off, and uh, I have heard more stories of freedom in the last eight weeks than in the entire history of my ministry career combined on that subject of sexual assault. And so I truly believe the Lord is using this. You just need to know this is the last one, all right? We gotta move on to the next part of the story. This is the last one, but you do have to get through. It's all kind of been building to this story. Are you ready? Starts off with this question. Your study starts with this question Do you have a day you consider to be the worst day of your life, all right? You have a day you consider to be the worst day of your life. There's never a point when someone asks you a question like that where you're like, no, life's just been great. You know what I mean? Every one of us have something that comes to mind, even if it was just a pretty bad day, right? Some of you who, uh, uh, you know, every time you roll, it comes up sevens. I mean, you, you, even, even the luckiest of people still go through days that are pretty difficult. And for most of us, there's a pretty dark day or a dark set of days that come to mind. Um, One of my favorite movies is called City Slickers. You ever seen City Slickers before? Billy Crystal. um, Just for the record, the language in it is atrocious. I'm not saying you should go out and watch it. The language is pretty bad in that movie, but uh, the storyline, I just love it. Plus, it's about someone turning 39, and I just turned 40, and so that's kind of been for my little age bracket. It's been a really uh, insightful movie, and so it's three friends, Billy Crystal, Daniel Stern, who you'll remember from the Home Alone movies, all right? And then uh, you've got uh, Bruno Kirby, three friends, been friends a a long time. Well, they're on this trail driving cattle, another story for another day. But as they're going, they got all this time to talk about things. And so friends going a little deeper in discussion. And so Billy Crystal uh, looks at the guys and goes, you know, where one of the guys says, what was your best day? Best day you ever had? Well, Billy Crystal tells the story that's from his actual life about going to a Yankees game when he was a kid and seeing Mickey Mantle uh, hit a home run, that first Yankees game that he ever went to. They then look at him and go, if that was your best day, what was your worst day? And he tells a story about his wife having a cancer scare. Well, then they move to Daniel Stern. Daniel Stern's character is having trouble in his marriage, but they ask him, they go, what was your best day? And he goes, you know, my wedding day was my absolute best day. And they're like, really? You guys hate each other. And he goes, no, no. But that day, he said, I felt like I was an adult that day. My dad winked at me that day, really showed me I felt like a man day. And they go, what was your worst day? And he goes, every day since is a tie. And that's what he (laughs) says after that. Then they get to Bruno Kirby, Bruno Kirby, big mustache. He's the one that looks like a cowboy of the three. They look at him, and he goes, I don't want to play. They go, what are you talking about, man? The rest of us have all done it. Why don't you do something? And he just goes, I don't want to play. And they're like, all right, whatever. But they're on the trail in the middle of nowhere, so they got nothing but time. So all of a sudden, the Bruno Kirby character goes, my best day. He goes, I'm 14 years old. He says, my mom and dad are fighting. He said, they're fighting because he's cheated on her again. And he said, "Uh, this time the girl has come up to pick him up at the house. He said, I walk outside at 14 years old, tell my dad, you're bad to us. We don't love you. We want you to leave. And he said, my dad makes like he's going to hit me, stops, gets in the car, drives off, and I never see him again. And then he goes, that was my best day. Well, the two guys, his friends look at him and they go, what was your worst day? And he says very profoundly, same day. Now listen, why? does that resonate in a movie? It resonates because there are some of us in this room who've had these moments of trauma that deeply shape who we are. And it's tough because it's hard to think of life and who we've become without those moments that at our core we really wish never had to happen at all. There's a difference between things that shape you and the thing that defines you. Do you hear me? I'm teaching you power if you're listening. There are plenty of things in trauma that can shape us, but our relationship with Jesus Christ is what the Lord seeks to define us. It does not have to be a tragedy forever. It also is not cool to pretend like those things didn't happen at all. That's not cool. But to let that trauma moment become our defining characteristic, that is not God's will for our life. Amen? It happened. It shaped us but it does not have to define us. Two types of sin, sin we do and sin done to us, okay? They have very, uh, all sin falls short of God's glory, but these uh, two different types of sin have different baggage that they bring with them. The sin we do is pretty easy to wrap our head around. You tell a lie, there are repercussions for that lie, right? Uh, You take something, there's repercussions for that thing that you took. You harm someone else, There's repercussions, and it's easy to wrap our heads around that sin. The problem with sin done to us is it comes with baggage with our view of Almighty God because we wonder we didn't do anything wrong. We've inherited this awful thing that will end up being something that shapes our lives moving forward. Sin done to us is abuse. It's abandonment. It's it's a family name or a bad reputation that you inherit. Sometimes it's the ills of society. Sometimes... For those of you in the military, it's a mission that you were told to go on and there was baggage attached to the mission. If you're taking notes, a little quote here for you. All sin shackles us, but sin done to us brings with it an intense distortion of our view of God. You say that again. All sin shackles us, but sin done to us brings with it an intense distortion of our view of God. Because in the midst of inheriting sin that we did not choose... We look to God many times, myself included, and go, God, why is this happening to me? God, why did you allow this mess to take place? Why do I have to bear this when I didn't want it in any way, shape, or form? That, I guarantee you, is how Tamar felt in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 10 through 19. Now, just so you know, sometimes this passage can be read where Tamar is a footnote in Amnon's story, or like we're doing, a footnote in Absalom's story. The reason that I preached Amnon last week, verses 1 through 9 by himself, is because this is Tamar's story. Verses verses 10 through 19 are the story of this woman and the story of the victim. The victim's story is not a footnote in the abuser's story. The victim's story stands on its own. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read it. We're not going to dwell on it, okay? But it is important that we read this today. You ready? 2 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 10. Remember our story from last week? Amnon, prince in David's house... Uh, has a right to the throne at this point, Uh, at least one of the ones who would have a right to the throne, he falls in love with his half-sister Tamar. It was not okay in any circumstance for them to be together. Uh, And uh, he wants what he can't have so badly. It says in verse 2, he's frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister. Well, with his friend Jonadab, he comes up with a plan to isolate uh, Tamar and then to try to figure out a way uh, so that he can uh, be with her. But the problem is there is no consent there. Look with me, if you will, at at 2 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 10. It says, Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here to my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Underline my sister there. Again, he knows that what he's doing is wrong, and he almost seems to glory in it in this moment. The next verses are verses I don't feel like I fully understood until my last time of study. Verses 12 through 14 are... Tamar's way of just trying to get away. And look at what she says here. She says, don't, my brother. She tries to appeal to him from a spiritual standpoint. This is not in God's law, but he doesn't listen to that. She then says to him, don't force me. She lets him know I do not consent to this. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. Then look at verse 13. What about me? She cries out. Don't you care about me? Don't you care about my feelings? He clearly doesn't. Where could I get rid of my disgrace? What about you? all of a sudden she turns it on to him this will be disgraceful to you as well but he's not hearing the appeal and then she said you would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel please speak to the king underline please speak to the king he will not keep me from being married to you underline he will not keep me from being married to you I read a commentator that wrote 400 years ago and it's the first time I feel like I really understood that verse I think I thought when I read it that Tamar was saying that she liked him too. But we find out from the other verses, she's not saying, talk to the king and I can marry you. David is a godly man and one of the commentators from 400 years ago says, she just wants to get out of the room. If she can just get to David, David will provide protection for her. If she can just get away, there's no way that David would allow him to do this to her. And so... She doesn't hear, he doesn't hear any of the mess. And then that's where we get the next verse. It says, but he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. It says, then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had ever loved her. Amnon said, get up and get out. No, she said, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. And he called his personal assistant, his personal servant, and said, get this woman out of here. Underline this woman. At this point, he's just treating her like she's nothing. Get her out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out, bolted the door after her, and she was wearing a richly ornamented robe. For this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. And Tamar put ashes on her head Tore the ornamented robe she was wearing, and she put her hand on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Now, stop here. This is not Amnon's story. This is Tamar's story. Can we stop for just a minute and weep for what happened to this woman thousands of years ago? This is awful. And I truly believe the reason the Lord has allowed this to be in scripture is so we won't gloss over it in our churches, just like us today. And we will acknowledge that this junk does happen in a broken world. And there in our midst that the Lord seeks to make us holy, seeks to heal us in the midst of our tragedy, that we might find a way to trade tragedy for victory. Uh, Anyway, from this point, what we're going to do is we're going to address the question, how do we find freedom from the way to sin done to us? What happened to Tamar is a story that many can resonate with. How do we find freedom from the weight of sin? This is a one-point sermon. We must go to Jesus. He is the one place that we can find freedom from the weight of this mess, from the weight of sin done to us, stuff that we do not understand or feel like we deserve, and yet we have to carry it. We must go to Jesus. So the big million dollar question we're going to look at today is why go to Jesus? I think as I've prayed for you specifically leading up to this message, my prayer has been that you would find freedom today as we go through these passages where we have studied about what's happened to Tamar, but we can look at what we can do moving forward if we pursue the throne of Jesus Christ. Why go to Jesus? Number one, are you ready? Because Jesus is familiar with pain. Because Jesus is familiar with pain. If you've got your Bibles now, flip open to Matthew chapter 25, excuse me, Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to start in verse 27. We go to Jesus, and the reason that we can is because he is familiar with our pain and not like one who doesn't understand what we've been through. You ever had somebody tried to tell you, and some of you may even feel like this today, you feel like somebody's trying to tell you what your pain is like when they themselves have not crawled through it? Again, when you feel like you've crawled through the mud where the mud has razor blades scattered in between it and you're crawling on your stomach just trying to get through and trying to get by the mess, it's something that, again, your desire for it not to define who you are, you know it's going to shape who you are, but you're trying to find a path forward. So many times we can trust so many different sources with this. If we go to Jesus, he is familiar with that pain and we can trust him with our mess another little movie I love called The Count of Monte Cristo. You ever see The Count of Monte Cristo? Jim Caviezel, great little movie. Uh, It was a book by Alexander Dumas before, but we're giving Jim Caviezel credit on it today, all right? Count of Monte Cristo, uh, a guy who is imprisoned uh, for a crime he did not commit. And do you remember, he's not just in a prison, but he's in an isolated prison where he can't even have visitors. And so the only visitors he has are the ones who come in to persecute him and whip him once a year to remind him that there is no hope. But God's given him a special gift. He's got on the wall where a prisoner previous to him has carved into the rock, God will give me justice. Carved into the wall, his mantra, his motto For every single day, God will give me justice. But as the years pass, all of a sudden, he sinks deeper and deeper into despair. That God will give me justice seems like a distant memory. And so he starts off by carving it over and over again, day after day. But before you know it, he comes to a point where he sets the chisel down, and he just goes into the corner. This is not something that has shaped him. It is what defines his life. This sin that he did not commit... That He is paying the price for. All of a sudden, one day, God sends a messenger, one that they call the priest. You know him as Dumbledore from the Harry Potter movies, all right? (laughs) All of a sudden, a head of white hair pops up in the middle of the stone one day. And all of a sudden, as he pops up, an old man begins to climb out. And when the old man climbs out, do you remember Jim Caviezel's first response? He all of a sudden is terrified. Because this moment of change has taken place, but all he's known is trauma and difficulty to this point. So he shrinks up against the wall, doesn't know what to do. And because the man has been in the trauma longer than him and has been trying to figure out a way to move forward in the mess, not let this define him, even though it very much shapes his life for this moment, he pops his head out and he goes, forgive me. I was assuming that I was digging towards the outer wall, and you watch this man who's been imprisoned for 11 years, begin to smile and laugh. And Jim Caviezel, then at that point, because the trauma is defining his life, he looks at the old man, and here's what he says. He says, 000, or fifty, excuse me, 72,519 stones." And with tears in his eyes, talking about the trauma, with this person who understands, he looks and says, 72,519 stones. I've counted them many times. He's letting him know, I feel so alone. And do you remember what the old man, the priest, says to him? He goes, ah, but have you named them yet? All of a sudden, Jim Caviezel starts to cry. The tears that were welling up in his eyes begin to flow. He's found someone familiar with his pain. The old man puts his hand on his head and says, Once I was as you are, but it will pass. Someone not familiar with trauma, when they say that to you, it's hateful. It's hurtful. But someone who's been through it, when they put their hand on your head and say, I once was where you are, but it will pass. That's what Jesus does for us. It does not belittle what's taking place. It is a life-shaping event. But it does not have to define our future and what God is doing. We cannot let it. Jesus is familiar with our pain. Flip open to Matthew chapter 27, and I want to read you a story real quick. Matthew 27, for me personally, is the part of the story of Jesus, verses 27 through 31, That set of verses is particularly awful because at this point Jesus has just been sentenced to be crucified but for Pilate he doesn't want to kill an innocent man. And so Matthew 27 is where they take him out of the public view into what they call the praetorium. It was basically like a little mezzanine area inside the governor's mansion but it was a place where there would basically be no security cameras. And the men have been tasked to beat a recantment out of Jesus. This is the moment where truly when you read through the passion story, this is the devil's moment to shine. Jesus is out of public view and the thought is we can beat him into submission and maybe just maybe with the threat of crucifixion on the other side and the humiliation of the praetorium, maybe we can get this innocent man to recant and then Pilate doesn't have to kill him and then the Jews can move on saying that he was a heretic. It all comes together in the moment of intense trauma and abuse. Look what happens in verse 27. It says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium And they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. You've got to picture Jesus out of sight, no security cameras, nobody looking. And he's surrounded by men, stripped down naked after he's already been whipped and beaten with the prospect of crucifixion on the other side. The, The sentence has been handed down. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said, and they spit on him and they took the staff and they struck him in the head again and again. They would have nailed those thorns into his head like a hammer onto nails. And then after they mocked him, they took off the robe, put him in his own clothes, and they led him away to crucify him. It's the way that abuse comes together, isn't it? They try to pretend like nothing ever happened. And they send him out just completely and totally destroyed. Jesus is familiar with your pain. Whatever it is you've been through, whatever it is you've navigated, he understands. The writer in Hebrews says it this way. Flip open now to Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, beautiful verses here by the writer where it says this, therefore, "...since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness." We have the one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet is without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of great need. It says here in the passage very beautifully that when we go to Jesus, he is worthy to bear that burden alongside us. He understands what we've navigated. And don't forget this, just like Jim Caviezel feeling alone in that prison prison cell, just like him feeling alone with those rock walls surrounding him just like that Jesus feels the same way when he's on the cross and he cries out to the father father why have you forsaken me have you ever thought about that Jesus cries out feeling those feelings of loneliness in isolation feeling like weights have been placed on him that he did not earn or did not deserve the sin of the world placed on his shoulders and as he cries out God where are you God I feel all alone in this moment this should give you hope if Jesus is sinless and he cries out, God, where are you? It wasn't sinful. Isn't that interesting? To cry out to God and say, Lord, show yourself to me. Lord, where are you in the midst of my difficulty? That in itself is not sinful. If it was, Jesus couldn't have done it. It begs the statement. Jesus is fully aware of the crippling weight of sin that he did not commit. Jesus is fully aware of the crippling weight of sin that he did not commit. He's familiar with pain, and it's the reason we can go to him. He understands. It begs the question, have you bought the devil's lie that you or have you bought the devil's lie that no one understands what you've been through? Have you bought the devil's lie that no one understands what you've been through? He wants you crouching and alone in that prison cell. Feeling like there is no hope. But if we go to Jesus, there is hope. But that's not the only thing. Why go to Jesus? Number one, he's familiar with pain. But number two, Jesus is moved by your struggle. Jesus is moved by your struggle. Can I tell you why that's important? Because sometimes knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that God is all powerful, when we have those thoughts of God, why did you allow this to happen? All of a sudden, if you grew up in church, it's a natural connection for you to go, well, God must have had more important things going on. And that's why he was taking care of those things. And my life doesn't matter. My struggle doesn't matter. But scripture speaks to the exact opposite. God is not distant God is not indifferent to what you've navigated. It's why the cornerstone verse of our faith is John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he would send his only son so that we could have hope and forgiveness. Crazy little story. Some of us have this view of God. Um, worked in a church job once. Won't say when or where, all right? But worked in a church job. And uh, have you ever had a boss... Um, that uh, you ever had a boss or a coworker that you were kind of subject to um, that valued the protocols more than the people? You ever had that happen before? It can be tough. In fact, we kind of live in that city, right? Uh, where a lot of the protocols and red tape outweigh the personal aspect of it. Well, one particular time, Um, we had just come up, our church had come up with a new protocol. The goal was to save money on waste for air conditioning and heating. And so there were new uh, air conditioning boxes put out uh, where there was a code that one of our staff members had the code for the air conditioning units. And the goal was that you could not turn on the air conditioning Unless, uh, unless you had the code approved by their office and their office were the only ones that would put it in. Some of you are like, I have this exact situation at my job right now. Okay, it's all right. At the church, it was a really hot summer. I'm going to have to give you a location. It was in Texas, all right? It was 110 degrees outside. It was July in Lubbock, Texas. 110 degrees outside. And we've got a gentleman served in the military, He's on his second marriage. Um, the way the story came together, just very difficult situation. The military kind of cost him his first marriage. Longer story for another day. We've got the second marriage that's taking place. It's a big deal. We love this guy. And I had filled out the paperwork to get the air conditioning turned on to do their marriage ceremony on that Saturday, but the office lost the paperwork, and so. Because of that, it was 97 degrees in the sanctuary for the day of their wedding. I start calling the supervisor, and I'm like, "Bro, bro, where are you?" And he said, "Not while I'm at my child's soccer game." I hung up, and I'm like, "Ah, 97 degrees. It was so hot." We end up doing the ceremony in the 97 degree heat of the sanctuary. It was awful. It was humiliating. It was just an absolutely terrible scenario. Well, after it's over, I go, dude, where were you? Where, why not just give me the code? And he said, it's not the protocol. One man, one code was the response. Now, here's the deal. Another story for another day on how that all plays out. All right. The view that we have of God when we go through a time of difficulty. The entire time I'm sitting there in that 97 degree wedding that the guy did not deserve. I'm sitting there going, why will he not answer? Why will he not show up? Why do we have the boxes on the air conditioning units in the first place to save 12 bucks? We ruined this guy's wedding, right? And you sit there in your own life sometimes and you go, Lord, I get for the greater good. But I'm carrying this baggage for the rest of my life over 12 bucks, right? Right? of greater good for the organization, you need to know that the way that we treat one another is not the way God feels about us, amen? God is not distant. God is not at a point where he sits on the backside and goes, you know what? I'm indifferent to your struggle because of the greater good that I'm trying to build towards. God is sovereign, and yet your struggle matters to God, and I want to prove it to you today. Flip now open to John chapter 11, and we're going to look at verse 33. John chapter 11 verse 33. This is the story of Jesus when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And you gotta remember this the crowd that Jesus is speaking to, they've seen him heal the sick. They've heard stories of him raising the dead. They've seen him feed the 5,000. But for them, it was a no brainer that Jesus could heal sickness and disease if he was around. And so, Jesus is delayed in coming to them. And some of his closest followers, Mary, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Lazarus ends up getting sick and he ends up passing away. Jesus shows up at this funeral knowing the miracle that's coming, knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, knowing that it's going to be glorious and beautiful. Watch the response of the Son of God in verse 33. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, underline saw her weeping, the her here is Mary Magdalene, truly one of the disciples in her own right, someone that Jesus loved dearly, that he cared for dearly. When Jesus saw her weeping, knowing he would raise Lazarus from the dead, look at this, and the Jews who would come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Some of you need to circle, highlight, and underline that little verse. Jesus is not indifferent. Jesus doesn't say, buck up. It was the greater good. Seeing their struggle and knowing the good that would come from it, he still is grieved and troubled. Look at what it says. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. It says, then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus is familiar with pain. And Jesus cares about your struggle. He knows the miracle is coming. And yet it still grieves him. For the pain that the others around him are enduring. If you don't take anything else from there, write this down. You ready? Even though he knows a miracle is coming, Jesus still weeps for his friends. Let me say that again. Even though he knows the miracle is coming, Jesus still weeps for his friends. This legalistic view, this distant, indifferent view that we have of Almighty God is shot down through passage after passage in God's holy word. Now, don't miss this either. Jesus weeps, and one group says, look at how much he loved him. But there's a whole other portion of the world that goes, well, he could have healed him if he wanted to. You realize for you as a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to hear both viewpoints. There's a fork in that road. You're going to hear some people telling you, well, this is just proof. Your struggle is proof that God doesn't care about you. And you will have another group that come alongside you. Navigating Trauma fighting through the mess and saying, I cling to God in all things, and I can feel him carrying me through the difficulty. It begs the question, do you know that your struggle matters to God? Do you know that your struggle matters to God? You are not a cog in the machine. You are not a check in the process. Your struggle, your difficulty brings our Lord and Savior to tears. What a beautiful thing to remember today. And now we get to the most important. We must go to Jesus. Why go to Jesus? Because number three, there is healing if you can get to Jesus. Let me say that again. Because there is healing if you can get to Jesus. He's familiar with our pain. He's moved by our struggle. And there is healing if you can get to Jesus. You ready for this? Last passage, Mark chapter 5. Flip open to Mark chapter 5, and let's start in verse 21. As you're flipping that direction, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. I don't know that you can get a better story in Scripture than this one. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in this passage. In Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21, let's read the first set of verses. It says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. It says, then one of the synagogue rulers, underline one of the synagogue rulers named Jarius came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter, underline my little daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him and a large crowd followed and pressed in around him. Here's the picture that we have in the passage. Man, this synagogue ruler, Jarius, somebody who was devout in the Jewish faith, but all of a sudden is so desperate. He's come to the point that he will go after Jesus because something precious in his life, his little daughter needs healing. He comes in, falls at Jesus's feet, but the entire crowd is around. You got to see in this moment, the disciples are there going, whoa, if Jarius has an experience with Jesus, if Jarius has this moment, it'll spread revival through the entire village, maybe even through the entire region, maybe even all the way up to the Sanhedrin or to the school of the Pharisees this is a powerful moment that God has engineered and everybody's pressing in around them everybody's coming towards this amazing grand godly plan but verse 25 and there was a woman there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years don't miss this The heaviness and the power of the moment. This viewpoint that God is up to something big in our days. And yet there was still this woman. She's symbolic of each and every one of us. In the midst of God's grand plans. In the midst of everything that he's doing in this world. Here's this woman going through her own struggle. 12 years of suffering. Verse 26. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. And had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she just grew worse. When she heard about Jesus... She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I can just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately, her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Underline and highlight, she was freed from her suffering. She could feel it. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. He to the crowd and he said, who touched my clothes? You got to know that's a funny question because they're touching him on every side. Everybody's surrounding him. And all of a sudden he goes, who touched my clothes? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. Just like Jim Caviezel in that little story. She's trembling and she told him the whole truth, underlying the whole truth. And he said to her, he says, daughter, underline daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You remember the grand scheme. He's on his way to Jairus' house to help who? His little daughter. And then all of a sudden we have this woman where she goes, my trauma is a footnote in what God is doing. My trauma is a footnote in what the Lord is trying to do here. If I could just touch him, if I could just touch him. So she touches the edge of his garment and Jesus stops the whole procession to show that she is important, that her testimony is important. And you see the moment, he then looks at her and says, we were on our way for a daughter of a synagogue ruler, but you're my daughter, you're my daughter, and your faith has healed you. You see, what trauma seeks to do, sin done to us, is rob us of our faith. The faith is where the power is, believing without seeing that God is who claim to be, that he can do what he claims to do. It seeks to rob us of that faith, abuse, trauma, abandonment. It seeks to rob us of that faith because that's where the power comes from. If you're taking notes, the sin has robbed us of our faith and we must reclaim it to be restored. The sin has robbed us of our faith and we must reclaim it to be restored. She acknowledges her struggle. She goes to Jesus. He heals her. And then she provides her testimony. I grew up, graduated high school in 1999. Every youth group in the country when I was growing up, some of your youth group kids, all right, you got raised by the youth group, you know. Some of you youth group kids will know what I'm talking about. There's a church called Life Church that came, uh, came about during that time. And there was a music group called Life House. That did a song called Everything. And there was a skit that Life Church put together to that song, Everything. You can go on YouTube and watch it. I'm not going to show it to you because Facebook and YouTube always kick us off if we're doing a live feed and a song comes on like that. And so you just have to bear with me in discussion. Sorry for snotting on you, Keisha. All right. Every youth group in the country did this skit. And the reason we did it was not because it was it was perfect, but it was just a very powerful illustration. With the song playing in the background, the skit was a woman and Jesus in relationship together. He breathes life into her, and they dance during the song as a picture to show the fellowship. But throughout the course of the song, she gets drawn away from Jesus by the things. The young woman gets drawn away in relationship that causes her to have baggage. And then she gets drawn away by struggles with self-image, trying to wear the right things, trying to make the right amount of money. And then it leads her down this path of destruction. Remember, the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. It's like a prowling lion, Scripture says. And then finally it culminates with someone dressed up like death. Death hands her a knife that she might mutilate her own body. And then death hands her a gun that she might take her life. That is the goal of the devil for your life. That you might become ineffective, And then you might take yourself out. That is the goal of the enemy every day of your existence. And you watch it on the other side as she sits there with the gun in her hand, contemplating taking her own life. All of a sudden, the song begins to change, and the character of Jesus starts to mime the rope, just pulling her closer trying. But in between Jesus and the girl are all these things of this world, all this sin, all this mess, these things that have been done to her. And he just pulls and he pulls. And finally, she stops and she tosses the gun to the side. And she tries to get to Jesus, but she can't on her own. There's too much sin in between. And she fights and fights. And the Jesus character pulls and pulls, trying to get her to come through. And then finally, the Jesus character runs through, busts up the group. And then as she hits her knees in prayer, it's a beautiful scene. The Jesus character stands like this as the things of this world try to grab at her, but he holds them back as she cries out to him in prayer. And then finally, when the time is right, he tosses them all to the side and she is free. It's just a skit, but it resonates so heavily because that's what Jesus does for us. He sets us free. And it says in scripture, if the son has set you free, you are really free. One final question, we'll call it a day. Are you allowing something that has shaped who you are to define who you are? Are you allowing something that has shaped who you are to define who you are? It is not a godly thing to pretend like these things did not happen or that they have not had an effect on your life. They have shaped who you are, for better or for worse. But our relationship with Jesus, he defines who we are. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And I set you apart for a great purpose, the Lord says to Jeremiah. You realize God's intent for your life can still be good. Don't allow what happened in the prison cell of isolation to be the thing that defines your present and your future. I love you guys. Thank you for listening today. Sorry for crying like a baby, all right? Y'all need to feel bad for me. I got to preach this thing three times today, all right? heesh. Anyway, I do it for the Lord anytime. And I do it for you. I love you. your pastor. I do it for you too. This is the last time that we're going to dwell, not dwell, but the last time we're going to go through this. We're not going to dwell on it any longer. But I want to encourage you, don't let this moment that the Lord's been building up to for eight weeks, don't let it pass without doing business with the Lord. Let's bow our heads for prayer.